Hello and welcome to another episode of Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth businesses and the people behind them. Today we have Chad West, Director of Marketing and Communications at Revolut. Revolut is one of the world's fastest growing fintechs with over 15 million customers. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Chad. It's good to be here. Great way to start the Friday. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Chad. So we always like to start by getting a bit of a context on our guest career. So maybe you could take us right back to the beginning and how you started out and how you ended up at Revolut. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story. I think I, it's always interesting. There's two types of people, right? You get the one kind of person who's got their career planned out, right? They know what uni they're going to. They know what industry they want to climb into. It's all mapped out. And then I think you have people like me who just kind of per chance fall into certain industries or jobs. And that was kind of it. I think when I was a student, I was always quite interested in politics. And I thought that was kind of the route I wanted to go down. And it's what I did pursue initially. So I started off on the political stroke agency side, doing sort of corporate comms, public affairs, government relations, things like this. That was quite interesting. I think I realized pretty quickly that I was quite a creative person at heart. And as you can imagine, in the political world, there's not a huge amount of creativity. Um, so I think I kind of came to a realization that, you know, I wasn't going to be sat there, you know, drafting up white papers and attending community meetings in a suit and things like this. So I quickly got myself out of there. And sort of this was at a point where, at least certainly for my generation, it was uh, tech was kind of booming. It was the desirable industry, right? It was the future. And Every man, woman, and dog wanted to get into the industry. So I was lucky enough to break into it. And my first sort of entry into tech was prior to Revolut working Rocket Internet. So I worked at a sort of really cool Berlin-based company that was essentially trying to be the task rabbit of the world. So it was an on-demand platform where you could book anything from a cleaner to a handyman to a gardener. So it was exciting. Spent a couple of years there helping to scale the company. We launched to about 16 markets in Europe, um, also into APAC to Australia and Singapore. And it was exciting. We made an acquisition of a UK tech company called Hassle.com. So, you know, it, that was quite a challenge in itself of rebranding the company here and scaling it there. So that was exciting. And it was really much focused on the marketing and the comm side. So meeting supply and demand. How do we not only raise awareness and get a lot more consumers coming to the platform, but equally, how do we get more professionals joining the platform so that we can match that supply and demand? So really interesting. I think equally, it was a gig economy company and it was challenging because this was a time where gig economy was, and I guess it still is to an extent, but was heavily being criticized for their business models. So it's a real sort of 360 degree scope role and um, yeah, super interesting in that sense. But fintech then sort of came to the scene. Um, you had these brands like TransferWise and others sort of running naked down the street. And everyone was talking about how digital banks were the future. And I sort of clocked onto that as well. I think it sounds cliche, right? But like a lot of people, I could, I could resonate with it, right? I didn't like my bank. I never felt like I was in control of my finances. I definitely wasn't. I made a lot of stupid mistakes when I was a student. And so when I was hearing these pictures of companies who were going to give you more visibility, give you control, reduce the fees, um, that's for any marketer, that sounds like a really sort of disruptive challenge. So I started applying to a few fintechs. I had some good conversations. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but I was speaking to Monzo and I was speaking to TransferWise. And of course, I was speaking to Revolut. Now, Revolut was the one that came to me, though. And at this point, Revolut was practically unheard of. I'd heard of Monzo. I'd heard of TransferWise. When I spoke to friends, they had two. And when I mentioned this company, Revolut, 
people were like, who's that? What is that? So it's quite a funny story because Revolut was my, it wasn't my first choice. It was probably my backup. I hadn't interviewed in a couple of years. I was a little bit rusty. So I kind of saw Revolut as a bit of a stepping stone to sort of scrape a bit of the rust off um, while taking the other two more seriously. But the reality was I sort of stepped into a room and met Nikolai and Vlad, had a really good conversation with them. And while they maybe didn't have a up and coming brand like some of the others, and they maybe hadn't raised the same kind of money, I think their vision as two founders just blew me away. I think there's a bad culture in UK tech where a lot of UK tech companies are often quite afraid to take a chance on themselves by expanding globally and moving out of their comfort zone and launching additional services and products. I think that's testament to the fact that we've seen so few global unicorns from the UK. But when I spoke to Nick and Vlad, it was very much like, we're not UK centric, we're globally focused. You know, We're going to take this company everywhere. We're going to solve these problems everywhere. We're not just going to be a basic digital bank with a nice app. We're going to do trading. We're going to do crypto. We're going to build this one financial hub. And that for me just blew me away. And I remember when I was telling my friends and my partner and things and saying, I think I'm going to take the Revolut one. And everyone saying I was crazy because they're small and no one's heard of them. And it was a bad mistake. And well, four years later, they're not saying that now, which is quite nice. So yeah, that's, uh, that's the gist of it. Yeah, nice. So it's interesting that they managed to convey that in such a sort of short period within the interview. And that was obviously very attractive to you as a staff member. How much would you put down Revolut success to speed? A fair chunk. I think coming from Rocket Internet, which, you know, has built many billion dollar companies around the world, I had a pretty good insight into what was the playbook for these companies, right? What was it that was making them be able to grow so quickly? And it was speed, right? And it wasn't just about speed of launching new products and speed of launching into new markets. It was also sort of internally as well. And, and it wasn't speed at all costs. It wasn't, you know, move fast and break things. It was let's do things right, but let's not allow bureaucracy and red tape um, to, to jeopardize our innovation. And I think when you look at Revolut, one of the key feedback I constantly hear from customers of why they choose us over other fintechs or why they choose us over banks, it's constantly like, well, you've got so much more diversity in your product that you're not just solving one of my needs, you're solving two, three, four of my needs. And I have confidence that you're not going to settle, right? You're not just going to stop there and think, great job done. You're going to continue to innovate. And even while it's hard, inevitably, as you scale as a business, speed does take a bit of a hit. Of course, you're adding more layers. If you're getting more licenses, you're becoming more regulated. There's always going to be kind of that balance. But I think it's still in our DNA as a culture inside at Revolut that we don't want to sit around and wait for a competition to launch things before us. Or, you know, we want to go into a market and have that first mover advantage. And we're not going to do that if we're sort of twiddling our thumbs. So um, I don't think it was, you know, the most important thing, but it's definitely right up there. Yeah, I do think speed is a really undervalued a lot of companies so you joined Revolut and things are going well but when did you realize that Revolut was really going to be huge what was a kind of trigger moment that made you think wow we're smashing this do you know for me I mean I came in as the first I mean I was an early employee I've been there four years now there was give or take 20 people 20 odd people and I was the first marketing comms person right and Revolut at that point Revolut's brand was pretty much non-existent um, I had a very diehard following of a small number of people, very much travel focused at the time. But when I came in, it was made pretty clear there's not going to be budget, right? You're not going to be able to spend lots of money. You're not going to be able to hire a lot of people. 
you've got to kind of roll your sleeves up and get on with the work yourself. And it was always a good attitude at Revolut of prove yourself. And once you prove yourself and deliver, you'll reap the rewards, right? You'll maybe get to hire some more people. And that was very much the approach. And I think we adopted a very strong customer community marketing strategy, right? So it was all about, we did things that other companies have done too. So we put product roadmaps live and let customers dictate what we built. We launched local community events across all of our key metropolitan cities. Um, we allowed customers to become investors. We totally adapted our tone of voice, took out all the corporate jargon that financial companies usually send to their customers. And we started adding some personality and humanity to the brand. And our growth, and we did a huge amount of media relations to really tell our story and get our product out there. And I think the numbers just started to boom. And I think it got to a point where we were hitting a million customers, probably about seven months in. Um, you know, we went from being like 60,000 customers to a million customers, and it was pretty much all organic. Everything was being done through organic channels and referrals and word of mouth was accounting for like 60, 70%. Now, of course, we were doing a lot to incentivize people to want to tell their friends and family, but suddenly we were then going from 1 million to 2 million to 3 million within the space of, you know, three, six months. And the majority of it was people who were loving the product. And I get asked a lot by younger marketers, what's the most important thing I should think about before I take a job, particularly in a, in a startup. And I always just bring it back to one thing, which is product market fit, right? The fact of the matter is Revolut was doing something unique. Um, we were doing something that hadn't been done before and we were solving huge problems. This wasn't a niche that only 2% of the population would be interested in. This was something that affected everyone, whether it was managing your daily finances or traveling and the issues that came there in terms of fees. So on one hand, I was thinking we are growing incredibly fast and primarily through word of mouth. And on the second point, our product, there's nothing out there competing with it. The banks can't compete with it. Other fintechs aren't moving at the same pace. So it was that point, I think we kind of realized this is going to be big. Amazing. And then you mentioned there that there was an element of kind of building in public and allowing customers to feed into the product roadmap. Is that something that was just naturally built into the DNA of the company or was it slightly manufactured and there were processes to enable that? No, it was manufactured. I'm, I'm a big believer that particularly in startups, whether you hire whatever you call them, a brand person, a marketing person, I often find they have a big sort of legacy in a company because nine times out of 10, they're bringing their own original ideas. They're bringing their own personality and putting it into the company. So when I came in, there was nothing in that sort of planned. I mean, like a usual tech com startup, people think it's all about engineering and data, right? That your company will make it and become incredibly successful because we have amazing engineers and great products. And and we know that's rubbish, right? You can build a phenomenal product, but if no one knows about it and no one's talking about it, you're not going to hit those numbers that you need to keep the lights on, right? And move forward. So I think for me, it was me bringing my own personal thing. What I did was I basically just sat down with myself and friends and family and said, what do you hate most about your bank? It was kind of like running my own focus groups. And I just tried to look for the consistent patterns that people were saying, which is, they keep sending me like emails and stuff, and I have no idea what they're talking about. I don't understand the language. They use all this weird terminology. So step one was like, how can we just break down our tone of voice to be human, to be open, to be transparent? And um, I think bringing that tone of voice in and making it very human was one aspect of it. And then thinking, actually, we can, for ourselves, decide what to build next and go and spend three, six months building something. But what if no one wants it? What if no one likes it? We've got no data other than the opinions of people internally. So going out with a product roadmap was 
kind of a, not only a great way to get the community involved and really let our customers know that they were part of this journey, but equally, it was a tremendous data point that we were actually building things that people actually wanted, which means we would benefit as a company as well. So the good thing is in time, it's become now part of the company DNA, as you'd expect. And, you know, it's great to see it now integrated and formal processes in place to ensure that we retain that kind of brand and that we don't kind of set out to become what we wanted to defeat. Yeah, 100%. And you mentioned earlier, as a marketeer, look for product market fit when you're thinking about joining a company because it'll make your life a lot easier. What other advice would you give to people who are thinking about joining a high growth company, whether they're in the marketing department or not? What else would you kind of look out for when picking a company to join? Yeah, it's a funny one because when you look at very small startups, I don't have the data to back this up, but I think it would be a fair assumption to say a lot of the people are very young and you could be quite naive, right? Particularly if uni or you've got maybe one, two years, going into a startup environment will be very, very new to you. And there's loads of things I look back and reflection and think, oh, I wish I'd focused on that or I wish I'd knew this and done my research. So obviously product market fit is one thing you really want to understand. What is the problem we're solving now? And what is the problem we want to solve going forward, right? So you have a good knowledge of what the roadmap looks like for this company and how they plan to go from A to B. I think the second point you need to understand is something that people don't often talk a lot about, but typically when you go into a startup environment, it's pays typically lower. Um, you know, you're working way more hours than you would in the, in the corporate world. And one of the ways they get around that, I guess, a lot of startups is, okay, we can't pay you as much as maybe, you know, this big company, but we'll give you more equity, right? We'll give you stock options. And it amazes me how many people I speak to who just go in, have no idea what kind of questions to ask or what looks like a good deal and what looks like a bad deal. And I think you've really got to do your research there of like, okay, what kind of options am I getting, right? Are these kind of EMI options? Are they CSOP? What's the name of them? And what does that mean from a tax perspective, right? Is it beneficial that I get one over the other, right? What does my vesting look like? Is this company trying to say I need to hold them for four years? Maybe I can get them down to two years, given that I'm going to be working my absolute socks off for the next two years. I think that's fair. I think you should also be looking at the option of in my contract, does it say that I'll be able to sell a portion of my options every time the company raises, for example. And look, this is not the most interesting area in the world. I think it can be quite confusing and complex, particularly if numbers aren't your strong point. But, and I know it's a little bit off topic, but I think it is a problem I consistently hear people about where they look back at their, their equity packages and they're like, oh, I had no idea what this meant at the time and what that meant. And they often end up kicking themselves or you know, could have saved themselves a lot of money in the long term, for example. So I think really clue yourself up. If you're going to be going in somewhere working 12, 13, 14 hours a day and taking a pay cut, just make sure you're compensating for that in terms of the equity that you're negotiating. I think the third point is the founders. These are the people that are ultimately going to be driving the company. They're going to be leading the direction. They're, be, they're going to be going out trying to fundraise. Will you be able to work with these people? Um, founders are Marmite, right? You'll get, <laughs> you'll probably love them or you'll hate them. So I think you've really got to understand what drives the founder of the company that you're looking to go for. What is their personality like? You know, are they someone who's very open to ideas? Are they an egomaniac? Um, you know, are they going to be rewarding their employees? Do they see this as a long-term journey? Or are they seeing this as a short-term thing? I think you've really got to get yourself familiar with that founding team generally to make sure that you'll fit in there from a cultural perspective. So yeah, I think there are some of the things, but I think from a marketing perspective more specifically, I think you've really got to understand what is expected of you. I think a lot of people can fly into a role with a high level overview, not really knowing 
what's going to happen. So if you're asking the right questions of, okay, what is my goal, right? And if it's customer acquisition, okay, what are you expecting in my first six months? Okay, and how am I supposed to get that? What did, will I have the opportunity to hire? Will there be any form of budget? So you've really got to be asking these questions to make sure that you're going into an environment where you're not set up to fail, where you can actually succeed and what's expected of you is aligned with your skill sets, right? I mean, I hear this term all the time where people refer to themselves as a, you know, a full stack marketer, which for me is just a bullshit term, right? Because the reality is marketing is such a large function now. Yeah, 100%. That's so interesting. And those are really good points, particularly on the equity side of things. You know, people need to really do their research about what the scheme actually involves and also what roles and responsibilities. Yeah, expectation management is so important. So, yes, that's great. And then you also mentioned founders there. So do you think you might be a founder one day? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's always been my goal to do my own thing. It's funny. I have a lot of people who say to me, um, go and become a founder as soon as you can. Right. And you see a lot of people in their early 20s who do it. I sort of wanted to take a different approach. I think there was a part of me that said, you know what, I'd like to really get the experience of working in high growth, fast growing companies and growing them to scale and really learning how to scale a company from a startup, how to then manage a scale up and how do you upskill yourself. And I always said that when I get to my sort of early 30s, that's when I'll really consider doing a startup because that's when I envisage that I'll have really the breadth of experience that I think I'll need, where I'll have kind of sufficient capital. And that's been my sort of strategy. So I think, I don't know if it's my next move, but certainly in the near future, my plans are to go out and uh, take a chance on myself. And, you know, I encourage kind of everyone to do that. I think I kind of knew I wanted to be a founder when I was younger. I was the sort of smelly poor kid at school, but I went to a fairly middle class school. So you can see the issue there, right? Of being the poor smelly kid in a, in a middle-class school. And I remember kids used to always have like the best school bags and the best shoes. And I obviously didn't. I remember when I was younger, I thought, well, how can I fix this? I can only fix it myself. And I remember what I did was I went to like a cash and carry and I bought loads of bars of toffee. Toffee was big back in the nineties, right? Everyone loved it. And I bought them wholesale price, really cheap with whatever pocket money and lunch money I'd saved. I put them all into a box and I'd walk around the richest neighborhoods in my city selling them door to door. So I ended up paying like 25 pence per bar of toffee, but I was selling it for like a pound 50 door by door. And of course, no one's going to turn away a blonde haired, blue eyed little boy at their door trying to sell them toffee. And I ended up making up you know, decent money for a 12 year old boy at the time. And I think that's when I kind of realized I had that entrepreneurial flair, that kind of hustle to, to change things. And then it's just never left me. There's umpteen more examples, but that's kind of the trigger for me of, uh, of when I knew. Yeah, awesome. That's a great story. And so if you are to be a founder one day, do you think that will be in fintech? And then a sort of second question to that is, do you see London as the home of fintech? And would your company be headquartered here? (laughs) Do you know, would it be in fintech is such a good question. There's still quite a few of us at Revolut of the original team who are still hanging around four or five years. And we were having the same conversation around, you know, if we were to do something next. And I think there was a a general consistency that no one wanted to do fintech after this. And I think I might be in that boat. Of course, I do love fintech. I've, I've been part of the biggest, most successful fintech companies in the world. And, you know, I'm forever grateful for this opportunity. And I still love it to this day. But I think the challenge with fintech is there's 
a lot of bureaucracy and red tape that comes with the financial services industry. You are quite, to an extent, limited. Things can move a lot slower. And I think you've got to have a lot of patience when you get to a a certain scale that things aren't going to be as fast as you'd like them to be and maybe not as innovative as you'd like them to be. And you don't necessarily have those barriers in other areas of the tech industry. So I don't think my company will be a fintech company. No, I think I'll maybe put my fintech boots up, but we'll see. I'm a big believer in I take things as they come and I don't sort of make any long-term decisions and try and take it step by step. So who knows, but I don't think so. In terms of London, yeah, I think it would be based in London. And do I think London is not just the fintech hub? Do I think it's the tech hub of Europe? I absolutely do. And I don't see that changing either. I've worked for a Berlin company. I've been to Berlin. It's got a good tech industry, but it, in my opinion, doesn't come close to London and nor does Paris. So I think London will continue to keep the crown. And I don't see that changing both in terms of the talent here, the infrastructure, the access to funding, and even the regulation. You know, you could argue the FCA has probably embraced the fintech innovation more so than regulators in other parts of the world. So I think it's very well designed. But I'd like to see London be less of a focus. In my opinion, I've lived in London for seven years now. I'm in two minds as to whether I want to be here long term. I think the cost of living in London is disgusting in terms of completely trapping young people into the rental market until they're maybe fortunate enough to save enough money. So I think everything here from an expense perspective is just pretty shocking. And I think we've got phenomenal cities in other parts of the UK. I think most notably is Edinburgh after London, where I think as a government and as a country, we can be doing a lot more to let fintech sort of spiral outside of London and go to other parts, which is not only means that in my opinion, that people will have a better quality of life, but I think it will also improve the employment markets in other parts of the country that will be struggling and even more so given the current climate. So I would like to see a shift away from London centricity and see the UK reap the benefits of the fintech sector. Yeah. So could we end up with a, a Miami of the UK? I mean, we're definitely not going to get the same climate, but I'm sure we can put up some artificial palm trees in the office. And uh... <laughs> Yeah. For those that are listening and don't know, there's a big shift from San Francisco to Miami in the US at the moment. So that's great. So what's next for Revolut, do you think, in sort of this year and beyond? Yeah, so I think the one thing that's happening that's a huge shift at the minute is Revolut obtained its European banking license a couple of years ago, and we're now in the process of passporting that license to multiple countries. So what that means is it's that sort of evolutionary step that Revolut's taking from potentially being a daily sidecar for a lot of customers to now becoming their full primary bank. So we've already expanded it to a couple of markets in Europe, and there's about 12 more coming up in a couple of weeks. So that's a big shift from us, from literally going from being an e-money institution to being a full bank in many of our core markets. So that's exciting. And what comes with that in some markets is new services. Obviously, as we become a bank, we can look at lending, right? So we can be looking at personal loans and, and credit cards and overdraft facilities and all these other sort of daily necessities that people need. So I think that whole sort of maturity step up is a big thing for the business right now, which is exciting. I think equally, um, you know, Revolut's only five years old, which is not a huge amount of time, but our main goal for this year is to become profitable, which we've been making massive strides towards. So we're hoping to achieve that target this year, which is great. I think that instills a lot of confidence in our business model. I think fintech is often heavily criticized because it's not profitable after three or four years. 
I think part of that I find a bit ridiculous because if you look at the history of tech companies, it doesn't always happen that quick. But I think because you're a fintech company, the expectation is just a bit higher, which is fair enough. You know, the other part is our expansion. So, you know, last year, despite the pandemic, you know, we launched in Australia, Singapore, Japan, the US, which is exciting. So there's going to be a lot of growth and a lot of attention going into those markets so that we can have the same impact there as we have done in Europe and the UK. And we're now scoping out additional markets as well. So we're looking at other core markets, particularly India. I mean, you know, there's huge problems we can solve there. I mean, one of the things I think is most cool about Revolut is if you look at the remittance market, so the money transfer market, there's billions and billions of pounds flowing from India to the UK or the US to the UK. It's humongous. And these transfers typically take two or three days to arrive. And there's often a fee associated with it as well, as much as up to 5%. But of course, let's say, for example, if Revolut were to launch in India, so if you had Revolut in India and your friend or family member or colleague had Revolut in the UK, you could literally send each other money instantly with no fees at the touch of a button. So it's kind of like a cross-border peer-to-peer payment. And I think that for me is huge because Revolut is literally the first company to tear down financial borders because once we're live in all these markets, it doesn't matter anymore. Money just moves and flows instantly with no cost. And that's pretty tremendous and something I'm very excited by. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, on the revenue side of things with the size of the market and with your distribution, you guys have the opportunity to just keep knocking down different verticals. So big things ahead, very exciting. So Chad, a couple of questions to end with. First one, if you could have started one other company in the world, which company would that be? It's an interesting one. Yeah, I can't say Revolut, obviously. That's maybe a bit too obvious. But I think it would probably be be Airbnb. And I say that because I'm a seasoned traveler, right? Whether it's business or pleasure, I'm forever, you know, at airports and whatnot. And I used to hate the idea of Airbnb. I couldn't imagine staying in some stranger's home, not knowing if they'd wash the sheets or if there was a spy camera. The whole thing just freaked me out a little bit of not having security in that sense. And I always stuck with hotels for that reason. But then I actually started a book Airbnb when we went on trips because my partner was encouraged to do so. And the experience for me was just so much better than staying in some cheesy resort that you could literally go and hire a lighthouse somewhere or you could go stay in a cave room in, in Greece or somewhere like this. And it just completely changed my perspective on traveling and experience. And I think I was always a bit of a boring traveler in that sense that I do the obvious spots and I'd stay in the obvious places. And then when I started to use Airbnb, I went purposely to go to the unusual spots. And when you went to those unusual spots where other unusual people were, you got to sit here about the things that other people don't know about and you got to make friends. I mean, I've made really good friends of hosts around the world, things I just never thought I'd do, right? I thought I'd just grab the keys and go. Like, Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. But, you know, I actually got into a point where you get to know these people and you stay in touch with them. So... I just didn't appreciate the actual impact they've had on travel and what traveling means, not just from a cost perspective or a technology perspective, but generally from a sort of cultural perspective. And I'm sure they've got a difficult time ahead of them (laughs) in terms of the pandemic, but I'm pretty confident they're the kind of company that will pivot quite well. So yeah, it's maybe a bit of a cliche answer to pick a big name like that, but I think that would probably be the company where I think I could have brought a lot of great ideas and done some great stuff. Yeah, awesome. And last question, because I can hear your Slack pinging. So you're you're (laughs) But if you could have a working lunch with anyone and pick their brains for an hour, who would that be? 
Do you know what? It's based on my own experience. I mean, one piece of advice I never gave is Revolut grew so fast, right? In terms of customer numbers, in terms of employees. And what that meant was it was really tough to upskill yourself and catch up because you had to learn whole new things, processes, structures, team management, all this kind of things very, very quickly, right? At the same pace as the company. And you make mistakes, right? No one does it perfectly. And I always say one advice I give to whether it's founders or other marketers looking to go into the industry is really place some emphasis on process and structure from the beginning. You're inevitably going to go in there and be very scrappy and things are going to be a bit all over the place. But if you start to set just little bits of process from the beginning, your life will be so much easier as you go forward. Equally planning. Too many people only look at the next quarter ahead of them or the next six months. You've got to be thinking, okay, I've got a team of 10 right now. I know we're going to raise X amount next year. I need to be thinking about where my team goes from here. What are the channels we focus on? What is the talent we need? What is the right hiring process we need to set up to make sure we get the right people? And I think one person I'd love to pick his brain because he must have gone through this in such a massive way, but is um, Ben Francis from Gymshark. I think you're talking about a young lad. It was like pizza delivery driver, sewing stuff in his nan's machine or something like this. And he went on to be a CEO of a company that moved so incredibly fast. And I think I've read some of his stuff, which he's quite open about, but I think just on a one-to-one basis, it would be really great to understand in more detail of like, what did he get right? What did he get wrong? Because he was in a very unique position and I can only imagine the sort of enormous strain and challenges he must've went through. So yeah, I think he'd be a good person to have a pint with and uh, pick his brain. Yeah, great. I don't know how many pints he would sink, but <laughs> yeah, it'd be, I agree. It'd be really interesting because for such a young person to have executed so efficiently is incredible. Well, thank you so much, Chad. It's been great to have you on. We really appreciate you taking the time and wish you all the best with Revolut going forwards and look forward to you maybe starting a non-fintech business in the future. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me.